So when I was a kid, I would sit at our kitchen table with my mother, complaining about having to do math. Uh, fortunately, my mom was a math teacher, um, but instead of appreciating that, whenever she was helping me, I would spend most of my time saying things like, why can't you just give me the answer? Yeah, I mean, you know what it is. Or, this is dumb, what, what's the point? I I'm never gonna use this in real life anyway, right? Well, now I have kids who are saying, this is dumb, and I'll never use this in real life anyway. And so I say to them, well, math is teaching you how to think and solve problems in different ways, and you're always going to need that in all kinds of situations in life. Which is exactly what my mom used to say to me <laughs> when I was a kid. So, uh, mom, if you're listening uh, or watching, you were right. <laughs> Uh, but what she didn't tell me was that I would end up having um, kids or at least one kid who, who actually wanted my help with math. And so since the beginning of school, I've been sitting at the kitchen table in our house with our daughter, and she's not complaining about having to do math homework, but she is a little confused as to why I can't figure out how to help her. <laughs> Prime factorization trees? What in the world is this? I, I, I swear I've never seen this before. So we work on the first problem together, and I say, yeah, I think that's right. And so she, she hits submit, and it says, wrong. Your answer is incorrect. And I'm like, what? And so I say to Fia, why, why don't you go get a snack for yourself? And, and I sit there at the table all by myself watching YouTube videos on prime factorization trees and doing exercises and extra homework so I can figure out what's going on so that when she finally comes back to the table, I say to her, call your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> she, she can help you out. Now, now, I'm saying all of this because uh, we're working our way through the book of Numbers, the, the fourth book of the Bible, which begins with about four chapters of, of addition and, and subtraction and, and even, even multiplication. There, there's a census, and uh, as I mentioned this last week, the Hebrew word that we translate as census literally means lift up each head. So not only count the people, but affirm for these only recently liberated slaves, you matter. You matter. You all count. But here in chapter 3, uh, there's, there's a problem. So I'm going to need a, a little bit of help with math, if you don't mind. If, if you want to try to figure this out in your bulletin or just in your mind, um, let's, let's begin reading uh, Numbers chapter 3, starting at verse 14. And, and we'll skip around a little bit. So the Lord said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, count the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, by their families and clans, count every male a month old or, or more. So there's some counting that goes on, and we skip down to verse 22. The recorded entries of all the males from the Gershon clan from the age of one month up, as recorded, came to 7,500. Okay, how many people are actually going to try to do the math? <laughs> Anyone? Just I just need one person. Skipping down to verse 28, all the listed males from the Kohath clan from the age of one month up 
came to 8,600. And then verse 34, the recorded entries of all the males from the Marari clan from the age of one month up came to 6,200. So we have 7,500 plus 8,600 plus 6,200. What's the answer? 22,300. 22,300. Very good. I'm going to call you when my kids need help with their math. <laughs> okay, so let's keep reading. Numbers uh, chapter 3, verse 39. All the Levites who were recorded, whom at the Lord's command Moses and Aaron recorded by their clans, all the males from the age of one month up came to 2,000. Even. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And, and I mean that with all sincerity. This is the word of God and the biblical author or a later scribe got it wrong. Perhaps, perhaps they grew up thinking that math was dumb and that they wouldn't need it for real life. But, but here uh, we are, uh, thousands of years later, and this mathematical error, is a, it's a part of our faith. This error, along with other mistakes, are a part of our most sacred scriptures. And honestly, I, I've, I've come to appreciate these errors. I'm glad for, for errors and others because it reminds us that there is still something sacred about our flawed humanity. There's still something sacred about our flawed humanity. There's still something that can be redeemed even when we don't get it right, even when we get it wrong. This also reminds us that we're not here to worship the Bible. Instead, the Bible is meant to point us toward God and toward Jesus' way of love. That's the point. And, and like real life, or at least, at least my real life, what we see in the Bible is a tangled mix of divine presence and our human complexity. Both our strengths and our weaknesses, our successes and our failures, and God there in the midst of all of it. The Bible, even if its makeup is divine presence, together with our human complexities. That, that, feels, that feels like good news for somebody who's complex. Last weekend, our family watched a movie that was, uh, th this is really popular, like a modern twist on a fairy tale or, or, or a story that is, is familiar to, to most of us. And you know how fairy tales work, right? There's a princess or a would-be princess who is trapped or in some kind of trouble because of a because of a wicked witch, or a dragon, or, or a dark spell, or uh, an evil stepmother, which usually requires a strong knight or a handsome prince to save the day. So we're watching this movie, and at different moments, the story departs from the traditional fairy tale way of telling stories. It departs from the clean divide between good and evil. When, when one of the villains has this brief moment of, of compassion, and our kids are, are like, wait, why are the mean people being nice? 
that's not supposed to happen. And so Maya and I would respond, well, humans are complicated. And then later, wait, why is the evil stepmother doing something good? Why are we seeing a bit of her humanity? Well, humans, humans are complicated. But wait, why is the good character doing something wrong? Or why is the, the hero failing? Well, well, we're all complicated, aren't we? This is why I believe that the Bible is true and inspired and, as we hear in 1 Timothy, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's true, not because it's perfect. It's true because it's an honest account of our complex, flawed humanity tangled together with God's divine presence. This is what we we talked a little bit about last week. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the people didn't really know God that well. God was, in a way, like a stranger to them. So, So like any of us, they carried their past experiences and relationships into this new relationship with God. They carried their past understandings of the gods and the culture that was all around them into this new relationship with God which meant that they assumed that God was also and must be dangerous and violent and at times oppressive. And so we see that reflected in the Bible. But what we also see in the Bible is that as God remains faithful and present, there are hints and and, and glimpses that have us saying, oh, maybe God isn't any of those things. Maybe this God is different than we expected. And, and even though we often get God wrong, God remains in relationship with us in order to move us forward, in order to heal our broken images of God, in order to heal our relationships, in order to heal us and to heal our world. So here in this story is, is one of those little hints, sort of hidden in the, in the, the tangled complexity of these stories. So continuing in Numbers chapter 3, verse 40. Then the Lord said to Moses, enroll all the firstborn. So this is like immediately after they've counted all the Levites, even though they got the counting wrong. Then the Lord said to Moses, enroll all the firstborn males of the Israelites from a month old and upward and count their names. But you shall accept the Levites for me. I am the Lord as substitutes for all the firstborn among the, Levite, the Israelites. And the livestock of the Israelites as substitutes for all the firstborn among the livestock of the Israelites, the, the rest of the 12 tribes. So Moses enrolled all the firstborn among the Israelites as the Lord commanded. So my sister was the first born in our family. And if you asked her, I'm sure she would say that it came with all kinds of expectations that were not fair. And if you ask our firstborn child, I'm, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing he would say the same. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if thumbs up is a good thing or, or a bad thing when it comes to that kind of a question. 
Um, but in the ancient world, uh, it wasn't entirely different. Uh, firstborn children also carried higher expectations and demands. How many of you are firstborn children? That's good. Yeah, it's usually the firstborn children. You guys are just, oh, you, get, you always have to do the right thing, right? So no wonder you're in church. Um, and, and of course, like the children, especially firstborn children, like feel like an incredible gift. And they are an incredible gift. But, but how can we possibly show the gods that we're really thankful for new life? How can we possibly show our appreciation I mean, and how much gratitude is enough? What if we get it wrong? What if God, the gods get angry? Or, or, or what if we need to give more? Will, will everything fall apart if we don't get this just right? You can hear, sort of feel the anxiety. I mean, this is the anxiety I felt as, as a firstborn parent. I mean, no, I'm so sorry, but we, we didn't even, I didn't even allow him to have Cheerios at one point because there was one gram of sugar in it. Right? And now, like, we basically let our third child, like, lick sugar off of the floor. <laughs> right? I mean, so, so there's this, an immense amount of pressure and weight that, that is a part of that, that uh, new parent reality uh, in, in being a firstborn. But, but in the ancient world, the only way to sort of manage or, or, or uh, to, to have some sense of certainty um, was to to give back to the gods perfection, to give back a perfect gift, one that couldn't be questioned. So you give some of your finest crops, but, but are there enough crops in all the world in exchange for the gift of new life? And so you give some of your animals, but, uh, but are there enough animals in all the world to give in exchange for the gift of, of new life and the blessing of new life? There's really only one perfect gift that you can possibly give. It's to give back the gift that the gods gave to you. That's the only one. That's the, the, the limit of, of how much we can show our gratitude. So every oldest child carried with them extra spiritual and family responsibilities required to keep the gods happy and the family safe and blessed and experiencing the goodness of, of the gods. But, but if, if that didn't seem like enough, then the firstborn could be dedicated to the gods, which could, could mean giving the child away and, so that they were raised in one of the temples. But if, if, if that wasn't enough, well, in ancient Egypt and other parts of the world, things could get as dark as you could possibly imagine. So here the people are, just rescued from slavery in Egypt in a culture constantly trying to appease the gods. They're facing a journey into a dangerous wilderness toward an unknown place and an unknown future. What if God changes his mind? What if God gets angry? What if God no longer will protect us or provide for us? What if everything falls apart? Have you ever asked that question? What if we don't get it just right? Will everything fall apart? Well, surely the only way to be certain that enough is enough is to give the gift of perfection in the form of our firstborn child or our firstborn cows and, and, and animals. Except here, this glimpse, this, this, uh, this hint that God is different 
this God is different. All of the firstborn children and even the firstborn cows, they stay with you. You don't have to give them away. And no extra spiritual burden or responsibility. Instead, the Levites, as a family, who will stay together as a family, they'll be uniquely responsible to manage all of everyone else's spiritual anxieties. In exchange, the rest of the tribes will help the Israelites with other things so that they don't have too much responsibilities and, um, and expectations. God provides substitutes for a culture worried that the gods are dangerous and that this God could be violent. God provides substitutes in the form of community. God provides a community of imperfect people helping to carry one another's burdens and responsibilities so that no one, that none of us have to be perfect. They, they share the burdens and responsibilities. Yeah, now, of course, the people will struggle with this all the way through the Bible, just like we struggle with, with those feelings of needing to get it right and needing to be perfect. But again and again, when the weight of perfection is too much God provides substitutes. Throughout the Bible, there are multiple stories of God providing substitutes so that the people don't have to carry such a heavy burden. Now, I, I get this. This is, this is all a really tangled mess, isn't it? I mean, really tangled, but, but so am I. And, and so are we. And so is life in this world. It's, it's really a, a tangled mess. But we're, we're removed from these people and these strange cultures by thousands of years and by language and by distance and by culture. Um, and it all feels very messy, but there's something here that still resonates with my own life and with the world that we live in. Wait, why do I feel like I need to be perfect? Why do I feel like perfection is required, that that's the standard that we're we're all trying to meet? Why do I place unhealthy demands and expectations on myself and on other people? If I get it wrong, will, will things fall apart? It's really interesting to write a sermon like this when you feel like if I don't get the sermon right, then everything's going to fall apart. If the Bible isn't perfect in the way that I want it to be perfect, will God disappear? Jesus stands in the gap on behalf of all of us, saying something like, if you're going to expect anyone to be perfect, or if you're going to expect anything to be perfect, let it be me. I'll be the substitute so that you can heal. I'll be the substitute so that you can rest. I'll be the substitute so that you and the people around you can be free. I'll be perfect so that you, so that, so that we, so that we can be human. I'll be perfect so that we can be human. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for being with us through the ups and downs of life in the midst of our successes and our failures, our strengths and our weaknesses.
We pray that your spirit would continue to set us free, that you continue to point us toward yourself and toward your, your way of love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.